Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Americans love a child prodigy. Shirley Temple, princess of the silver screen. Bobby Fischer, tempestuous and peerless. Henry Cowell, one of our most brilliant composers. There's just something about kid geniuses that enchants us. Fascination at how differently they must see the world and maybe even envy at how they've seemingly got it made. But in her new book, Off the Charts, The Hidden Lives and Lessons of American Child Prodigies, Anne Holbert puts quite a few tangles in that narrative. She looks at a range of children who've made a splash in American culture over the past century, and how their stories have informed our approach to education and child-rearing. But nature versus nurture, it turns out, is just the start of the debate, even when it comes to geniuses. And if we can't even settle on an ideal model for raising a, big scare quotes here, normal child, how could we possibly have a mold for child prodigies? Anne Holbert joins us in the studio to broaden the story by bringing in the voices of the kids themselves and taking us into the territory that you can't quite measure on a chart, so to speak. Thanks for being in the studio, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. So your book, I think, somewhat disconcertingly, uh, for those hoping for a how-to manual, doesn't exactly offer the answer to what makes a child prodigy successful. Um, and you certainly question the idea of success in a way. Um, what was your goal in, in writing the book? I think I took my cue from the first of the prodigies I read about, Norbert Wiener, who said the thing he resented about the way people approach prodigies is that they're always looking for either a cautionary message or a sort of exemplary model. And really what's interesting in these extremes is seeing what early childhood precocity is like in childhood and then sort of examining with a little less fascination about what the future will hold, what does unfold. Um, and the general context in which each of these stories plays out. So all of those concerns, I think, led me not to the let's find a clear-cut lesson here approach. So how did you choose the young Americans that you profiled? Were you looking for contrasts or even contradictions in their life stories? Well, what I was looking for was children whose exploits were the subject of real public interest 
in the way that they either raised questions about the possibilities that society at the moment laid out for kids and for families or touched on real concerns about the dangers of precocity. And I did believe and actually found in my search for my children that this belief was borne out that different eras, really, the preoccupations are pretty different. And I did want variety for reasons of the book, but I think it was not completely arbitrary that I did end up with quite a wide range of kids and each of whom spoke to their period in particular ways. So that was very important in my choice. I mean, it wasn't just sort of a random, let's see which kid am I interested in. It was sort of, let's see, at the turn of the century, really, Norbert Wiener and William James Sidis were very much in the public eye and stirred up a conversation about what is possible and what can nurture do and what's how is our sort of emerging meritocracy possibly going to be disrupted. And all of those questions interested me as well as the kids' stories. Right, right. I think their story in particular was really interesting to me because in a lot of ways, um, I think it was Norbert's parents in particular anticipated contemporary theories on child rearing, talking about uh, purposeful play and opposition to rote memorization, creative flow. They were even hard on summer break. Have you noticed like any kind of patterns or evolution in terms of how we view child rearing and especially um, prodigious child rearing? I think there you can look at that first story and then look at the last story in the book, which is about um, Chinese raising of musical prodigies and sort of see a real continuity there in the notion that nurture is way more important than nature and that early pliable brains are the best brains to work with and the notion that a sort of striver immigrant ethos is quite conducive to very early high achievement. That does seem to me to be a real standard staple throughout roughly the century that I write about, but interrupted by and buffeted by views that are very different, that nature is all, that kids own interests and drive should be at the forefront, that, you know, that's the most important thing to be focusing on. So if anything, I would say the continuity is that there is a constant debate and the debate takes different forms, but sort of the basic tenets of the debate are very similar. So who's an example of a wildly creative, innate talent, 100% nature kind of child prodigy? Well, I would say if you think of the second chapter about Henry Cowell, who grew up to be one of America's, I think, most important modern composers. And, and he's a rough contemporary of Norbert Wiener and William James Sidis, whose fathers are saying it's all nurture, not nature. And his mother is completely of the other view, so is his father, that this is their kid is a complete natural when it comes to music. They know nothing about it. He gravitates to it. And he ends up being having as a mentor um, Lewis Terman, who is, I think, probably the preeminent uh, early 20th century proponent of the notion that heredity is crucial, based on a belief that IQ was sort of the great clue to where you would end up. And he believed very much that this was innate. Now, that didn't mean that he didn't think um, education was also very important. And it's also true that I think if you pressed the parents of the great 
you know, advocates of it all being a matter of nurture, they would probably have to admit that it's not all nurture. I mean, Norbert Wiener had siblings, and his father tried to put them through the same regimen he put Norbert through, and they all completely, you know, did not come through. So even though he didn't, his father did not want to talk about the fact that Norbert was clearly Norbert, and that was crucial, um, I think he, in fact, knew that. Do you think there's any kind of difference between the way that um, creative genius, for want of a better word, is nurtured as compared to like um, mathematical or a more easy to measure genius? You know, it's a good question. I don't think um, if you think about my main examples of efforts to nurture literary genius, I would say those parents um, of two girls, one who wrote a novel at 12, Barbara Follett, and the other a poet, Natalia Crane, um, in their way certainly felt that they were more um, explicitly child-centered and offering stimulation in a way that I think when you think of Bobby Fischer, the chess uh, prodigy, or Norbert and Billy, who were Early on, they were pretty polymathic, but math was a big interest for both of them. There is more of a sense of a kind of obsessive drive on their part that's crucial to the mastering of the rules that are key in those fields, which are the ones that are generally associated with prodigyhood, are more rule-based, less freeform and imaginative. I think the whole idea of a literary prodigy is kind of an anomaly, which is part of the reason it interested me. There was this moment when people thought, hey, children can write in ways that adults will be awed by, which is not generally what we think, whereas we do think, oh, children will be chess prodigies. Right. I thought that chapter was interesting, too, because the way that the girls are received is very different from the way that, um, you know, mathematical or musical geniuses were received. You say that they were called an epidemic or a craze of girlhood genius which is a little different from how all the boys were received. It, I would say it was also actually sort of astute in that one of the things I came to think about exceptional talent and its nurture in childhood is that it is pretty dependent on a cultural setting. And that story about the real interest in childhood imagination was very much about a kind of contagion of interest. So though I think it does sound dismissive to call it an epidemic or a craze, I do think, you know, the fact that this book by Daisy Ashford that came out in England was an enormous hit was very influential. It made people suddenly pay attention to their kids and their writing and be interested in it and call attention to it. And unless you do that about a particular gift many gifts will go unnoticed. And I do think the literary girl stories tell us, make it clearer than some of the other stories, how much it really does matter what you're looking for. You will find it. If you're looking for it, you're not going to find it if you don't. And at that point in sort of war-weary, sort of jittery jazz age America, the idea that these young, imaginative children producing these pearls of wisdom was hugely inspiring to adults. And so they went around cultivating any signs of it that they saw, which is one way to end up with little girl novelists and poets. It reminds me a little bit in a way of of today's parents who 
mm, you know, there's a critique of Americans being helicopter parents and really hovering over their precious child. Like every child is special. Every child has a gift. It seems like people are looking again in that same way. I don't, do you think they're finding things? (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a good question. I do think that part of our version of the helicopter hovering is the antithesis of what it was then. And that is, we're looking because we want to capture early on the signs of promise and make sure to sort of get the fast track going with the view that these are going to be kids who ultimately will go to all the right colleges and be, um, you know, have a trajectory that is kind of an uninterrupted and rather adult-oriented vision of what a trajectory should be. That was so not the view, really, for these literary girls. And part of their allure was the fact that they seemed out of the routinized world that adults inhabited. And one of the um, great mentors of Natalia, Louis Untermeyer, you know, he would say, sort of, don't send them to college, don't, which in its way, you know, not a very helpful bit of advice either. But it was a pushback, I think, against some of what I would say we now rather readily embrace. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of people who I think are outside of the norm, a lot of the prodigies that you profile are neurotypical, or I guess super, super neurotypical. They're very, very extraordinarily intelligent. But you also include a number of kids who are labeled as savants who, you know, might fall in the autism spectrum now, like Matt Savage or um, John Jacob Barnett. So what's different about the way those talents are cultivated? Well, one of the things that really interested me about those stories is that they became a real interest. Television shows, you know, they were the subject of public attention at a point when the antithesis, which is the sort of 10,000-hour rule, the notion that if you're going to be good at anything, it's, again, the sort of nurture-over-nature view that you will work, 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 work. Savantism sort of tends to be associated with this whole idea of just spontaneous gifts. You discover it, untap it, there it is, blooming forth. And what struck me was, A, the cultural desire to appreciate both or in a way to pay tribute to the savant version at precisely the same moment we were really obsessing over the sweat version in a way. Um, But when you actually look at these stories, you realize how much neither of them quite fits the paradigm. That is 10,000 hours, you know, you will put those in if you're kind of getting real feedback early on that you're good at it. And in the case of the savants, how much work did go into the honing of Matt Savage's talent. I mean, he absolutely had an amazing ear after auditory integration training, but he also spent, and this is, I think, part of the autistic dimension of his um, situation, was he did love repetitive work, and he had incredibly laser focus in his way. And all of that, I think, was extremely conducive to the flowering of his talent as a jazz composer and pianist. So neither is quite the pure version of what they seem. Right. Do you think we're getting better at not creating these dichotomies between, you know, inspiration and sweat or whatever? Because it seems like over the course of these stories, children and parents talk about their experiences in sort of similar ways, sometimes different ways, other times. But I think like now there's a little bit less lying. Yes, (laughs) I definitely felt that sort of the 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 
rough trajectory, and I don't want to be too schematic about this, but that sort of the post-war half of the book, children end up having a little more voice, and they get to, not that they didn't have a huge role to play in the development of the talent of the early kids, they did, but they were not talking back to their parents because that's not what kids did, and they were not saying when the pressure was too much or I don't like the way this is unfolding. And I think that became more possible in the sort of post-war era when, you know, adult authority was more in question than it had been before. And I do think that the developmental recognition that in the end, a talent is really only going to flower productively if it is a talent that a child feels some real ownership of that the drive that they feel is theirs. And I do think that's made a huge difference. Right. It seems even if their talent or their focus or their passion, even if it's not really their passion in childhood, is forced on them by their parents, later on a lot of these kids go on to do just that and to sort of accept it as part of their story. Um, I'm thinking of like John Stuart Mill famously, who, you know, ingested political economy thanks to dad, almost committed suicide, and then still goes on to be a great philosopher. Right. I think one of the things I didn't expect to find, though John Stuart Mill should have been my guide, and I should have, is (laughs) how much the sort of adolescent midlife crisis, which is the way one... um, person who's paid attention to prodigies describes it is that, you know, this sort of moment of self-awareness of a less childish sort that comes with adolescence is a really crucial moment for a prodigy. I mean, it's a crucial moment for any kid, but I think for some, you might think a prodigy is so adult and his or her talent is so clearly developed, their identity would be absolutely clear to them and, you know, where it was headed would be clear too. But I think it doesn't work that way at all. And in fact, in a way, when you have been so absorbed in and so devoted to one particular thing, when you suddenly are an adolescent and trying to figure out, wait, how autonomous am I? What is the source of my drive? What is the direction I want to take it? It can be truly a major reckoning, especially when so many expectations have been um, created, which is inevitable when your talent is great. Right. No matter how successful the adult turns out in the end from your book, I get the impression that the experience is pretty difficult no matter what. I think that's true. I mean, I would say Natalia Crane, the young poet, um, actually really enjoyed most of her Uh, childhood and I think had a kind of nutty dad who encouraged her in a not very coercive sort of crotchety way and was and that she was pretty protected from the great debate that she stirred up which was wait is she really writing these poems or is her father or somebody else I think she really didn't much absorb all the fuss and then she had a bunch of mentors who've a bunch one in particular who wisely kind of said as she entered adolescence and then went on to college you should stay out of the public eye and the fact that her career really in the end didn't go anywhere I think her poetic career I think she found a very happy way to live without having fulfilled extremely high expectations which is of course 
the challenge. Um, it's not that you, one can't go on to live a very fruitful and productive life. It's just that when expectations have been set so high, it's not so easy to do that without somehow feeling you've disappointed someone somehow. I wish we could have talked about all of the child prodigies in Anne's book, including Philippa Schroeller, a forgotten biracial pianist and composer, and Mark Yu, a musical prodigy whom Anne got to know from age six on through his tumultuous teenage years, the prodigy's midlife crisis, so to speak, which was not the easiest to write about. For more about Mark and all the other geniuses, look for guidance, but no firm lesson plan, in Anne Holbert's book, Off the Charts. We'll be back next week with some infernal stories from some of the world's most mind-numbing writers, the great dictators of the past century. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.